Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Brother JP, Miss Aaron, and uh, God bless each one of you for being here. It's good to see a good number of guests today, and we're excited and honored that you're here. And uh, some have come from far, and others uh, are from here locally. And at any, it, it, wherever you're from, we're glad that you're here, and I pray and trust that the service will be a blessing to you this morning. So we opened our scripture reading this morning, and we looked. We uh, looked at what is known in the scripture as the great or the greatest commandment. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ reaffirmed that, and this is recorded three different times, and we'll mention that in just a few moments uh, in the New Testament. Uh, but it is the one thing that I believe that if we truly capture this one truth in our Christian life, that it could transform every area of our life. If we cannot get this one fundamental thing right, uh, then uh, we will struggle through life. You know, honestly, I cannot look, looking back, I cannot remember the last time that I've heard a sermon preached on it, or if I've ever even heard a sermon devoted uh, fully to it, though I am sure that there have been more than thousands of them preached over the years. If I were to go around the room this morning or go out into our community even and begin to ask the question, do you love the Lord? The overwhelming answer for most people would be yes, whether they were someone who was a professing Christian, who someone who was a committed Christian, someone that was very faithful, very devout, very uh, consistent in their walk with the Lord as far as their uh, their scripture reading and study and their uh, time in prayer and their devotion to go out and to uh, allow God to immerse himself through their life, those people would certainly say yes. Most people would, uh, even that are casual in their walk with God, would say yes to that. I, I do believe this morning that if I were to go out and find people that uh, identified uh, as a Christian, though there was no real practice of Christianity in their life, that if I were to go and just ask them casually, uh, do you love the Lord, that most of them uh, would just reflexively answer that they do. Uh, we do that not insincerely. I really don't think that most people that would answer that way would do so uh, facetiously. I think that they would do so uh, to the best of their knowledge of what that means, they would answer that uh, in the affirmative. Some would understand more and, under, and, and be honest enough to say, uh, well, maybe yes, but my life doesn't show it, or they would kind of qualify uh, the answer. For some people, we could look at and we could hear that answer of yes, and it would be easy uh, as a believer in Christ and uh, to and so, as someone else who says would say yes I love the Lord it would be easy to look and to say uh, yeah it's easy for me to accept that this person loves the Lord but then uh, in our in our flesh it would be uh, also easy to look and say well that person says that they love the Lord but there's really not any evidence of it and we start trying to qualify uh, who does and who doesn't uh, love the Lord. So some it would be easy to accept, others it would become difficult to accept that they do. I would say this morning that I'm glad that it's not my responsibility to have to determine who does and who doesn't love the Lord. Uh, I'm glad that that does not fall within my biblical job description. Uh, never, never mind deciding who loves the Lord a lot and who loves them maybe uh, a little less. I'm glad that that's outside of the realm of my responsibility. I realize that uh, many people know how to appear Christian. 
There are a lot of people that come to church that have been in church for all their lives and they know how to uh, they know how to speak the language. They know how to dot the I's and cross the T's. They know uh, how to appear uh, and to, to look like the part. But the truth is, is that none of us can see anyone else's heart. Only the Lord uh, is qualified to evaluate uh, any, other, uh, any other heart. I and mean, we are unqualified to, honestly, to evaluate any other heart than our own. And so when we get into that realm, when we start trying to make those kinds of decisions and judgments, we are, uh, we are taking something, I believe, that belongs to God and not to man. Having said that, I do believe that most who would say, yes, I love the Lord, say so sincerely believing that they do, whether or not the evidence of their lives complements or denies their claim. We appear or we answer the question based upon our understanding of it. So here's the real question this morning. Do I love God according to God's intention or God's understanding of what he means and states when he says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might? Now, if I'm going to answer that question and answer that question legitimately, then I have to understand what God is commanding of me. And so when we look at these verses, and it's kind of easy to look and to just casually read over them and say, oh, all my heart, all my soul, all my might, yeah, that, that's easy. I'm giving all my all to it. But do we really understand exactly what God is saying here? Uh, and I think that that we uh, oftentimes just read things casually and fail to dig uh, deep enough to really get what God is trying to tell us here. In chapters 4 and 5, if we were to back up this morning, we would find that Moses is teaching a new generation of the children of Israel uh, the lessons that he learned on Sinai and the truths of the Mosaic Covenant, that which God uh, has promised through his ministry to his people. In chapter 6, uh, can, as it continues, uh, and then when we get to verse 4 and 5, then he re-emphasizes the great or the greatest command. Uh, and so it's a new generation that he's teaching. Now, why is he having to teach the new generation this? Uh, when you read the context here of even the first five verses that we read where he says that you should, uh, your sons and your sons' sons, it's, it's very clear that what we live should carry down from generation to generation, and that's the plan of God. And because he is himself now teaching this next generation, it's clear that they have failed to accomplish that which God has commanded. And so Moses is trying to set some things in order. They have just finished or are, they are completing a wandering through the wilderness of 40 years. They have been out of Egypt for 40 years. They have been wandering uh, through the Sinai Peninsula and the desert there, waiting for the right time to enter into the land that God has promised all the way back to the time of Abraham. Now, it was never God's intention that they wander for 40 years. It was God's intention to bring them out of Egypt and to, within just a couple of weeks, make their way across and then enter the land that God had promised. And they did. They, they, they left. They crossed the sea. God provided for them along the way. Uh, God built or gave opportunity 
for uh, faith-building exercises in their life. They, they witnessed the plagues upon Egypt, and they experienced the Passover, and they uh, saw and walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground, and when they lacked water, God provided, and when they needed food, God provided, and they went through this uh, this process and this journey till they come to the promised land and then Moses sends out the 12 spies and only Caleb and Joshua come back and say hey uh, it is a it is what everything that God promised and more and if God promised it then God's going to deliver it let's go but the other 10 said no it's a land filled with giants and it's a land that will eat us alive and that will overwhelm us and what you see is two men that exercised their faith and 10 men that said uh, God that we don't have enough faith in God to do what God promised that he would do and so the response of God was uh, is that you are going to wander through the wilderness if 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 going through and saving you through the plagues and through the Passover and bringing you across the sea and purifying poisoned water and providing food is not enough for you to trust me to give you this land, then you're never going to have enough faith for me to give you this land. And so you're going to wander. And as you wander, everyone that came out of Egypt, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, uh, that is over the age of 20, uh, is going to perish. You are going to die. I've sat in a Bible class one time and had a, uh, a teacher to go kind of calculate the math of the estimated population of Israel, how many funerals that meant that they were having a day on the journey, and it was uh, a pretty in, in breathtaking number, really. Uh, but they, it was a it was a long, hard 40 years with a lot of uh, a lot of learning to depend on God. So, Pastor, that seems kind of cruel. Well, the reality is, is that the 40-year wandering did two primary things. First, it purged Israel of those that lacked faith. And second, it built faith in those that needed to have the faith to be able to cross in and to conquer the promised land. Uh, and I, I think that they learned their lesson. Uh, it's not certainly that their, that their faith was perfect, but when it came time to cross the Jordan, uh, they had to step into the raging river before the water stopped uh, and the land dried. But when it came to Jericho, they had to do things that really uh, to a conquering army seemed kind of silly, uh, but that God commanded them. So they did it and the walls fell and victory was given. They exercised their faith. They exercised the faith that the generation before was unwilling to exercise. And Moses here in our text is conveying to that new upcoming generation that would enter the promised land, that would conquer the promised land, that would experience the best that God had for them. Uh, he is beginning to instruct them on what has to take place and what needs to be. And so what is his command? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Why is that important? Is that statement important? Well, if you look at their culture and their time, all around them, all of the nations around them are involved in the worship of multiple gods, of multiple idols. They are involved in idolatry. They uh, are involved in, uh, in even in some cases, the sacrifice of their children. Israel will struggle with this throughout its entire history going forward. They're always being drawn back to the culture around them uh, and to the people that are around them. Uh, and so here uh, we see at least that, that Moses begins to teach. He says it's just he's one God. We have one God. We have one Savior. Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life and no man cometh unto the father but by me there is still only one god there is still only one name under heaven whereby we must be saved and that is the name of the lord jesus christ 
He is our God. He is our Savior. And so he gives them the command. Uh, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Now we're going to kind of pick this verse apart a little bit this morning. Uh, and then we're going to look at uh, the practical application which he gives us in the text this morning uh, to See, how does this work practically in my day-to-day life? And so we consider here this morning, love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, with all thy heart, and all thy might. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse number 37, and in Mark chapter 12 and verses 29 and 30, and in Luke chapter 10 and in verse number 27, when Jesus is asked, it's three accountings of the same incident, when Jesus is asked, Rabbi, what is the greatest command? Uh, this is what Jesus' answer is. And he adds to it, and the second is likened to it, that you shalt, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so Jesus reaffirms, hey, this was the greatest command that Moses gave, and it's still the greatest command for the day and age in which we live. And so how does that, and how does God define these things that he's commanded me? And listen, if I can't understand what God means when he writes this, then I'll never be able to put it into practice in my life. So what does God mean? The word love here comes from the Hebrew word ahab, and it means literally in every way. It is a very broad word. It means, uh, it means love in the sense of, uh, of uh, everything that I desire from human, and human appetite, from food and water uh, to, uh, to uh, affection uh, from, for a friend to the deep intimate love for a husband that, uh, of marriage. It is all-encompassing. And so when he says, love me with all of your heart, what he's saying is, I want you to give me your love, whatever that is. I would say this, that the day that I met my wife, I, and, I, and I did, of a truth, go to my roommates in college that night and say, I, today I uh, got acquainted with a girl that I'm going to marry. Now, it wasn't necessarily an easy road. She was not a, uh, she was not a willing participant early on. She was, uh, she was always trying to find a way out. I just wouldn't let go. And so, uh, but, but there was immediate attraction, affection. After 30 years of marriage, I love her far more now than I did then. It has been a progressive journey. And the more that we have experienced together, the more that we have lived together, the more that we have suffered together, uh, the more that we have had joy, experienced joy together, the greater and the deeper our love grows. Did I love her early in our relationship? Yes. Did I love her early in our marriage? Yes. But it's not the same as now. Could I say that I loved her with all of my capacity to love her? On those early days of our relationship, yes. But the definition and how that looks is not the same now as it was then. And so God is not saying here that you do not love me until you reach this criteria. God is saying love me with everything that you have. That's what God is looking for. And the more that you learn of me and the more that you walk with me and the more that you experience of me, the greater the capacity for your love will grow. And so if I could take, uh, I could take uh, uh, the water hose and begin to fill an 8-ounce water glass and I could say I'm going to put 10 gallons of water in here, but the reality is, is that it's not capable of holding it. I need a larger vessel. And God is saying here, you don't have to wait until your spiritual heart 
grows to an enormous capacity before you can love me to a point that I will accept your love. He's saying, you love me with the size of your vessel now. And if you'll love me that way, and you'll love me that way with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your might, all of your soul, with all of your might, then I will grow your vessel. And so God is laying out here when he says, love, love me, what does he mean? He means uh, that if you are brand new uh, to uh, church, maybe you're someone who has never heard the gospel. Uh, and you say, Pastor, in, in South Texas, people have never heard the gospel. You get out and talk to people, you would be surprised. And how many people in this day and age, even in our part of the country, have no idea about creation and the Genesis account of creation? They have no clue who Adam and Eve were. Uh, they have no idea about the life of David or Solomon. They, they are completely and utterly biblically illiterate because that's what our culture is today. It doesn't mean uh, that they're not interested. It doesn't mean that they, uh, that they don't have capacity to learn. It means they've never been exposed to the truth. And what we would hear from missionaries decades ago, we experience in our own cities now today. And so if you're someone here this morning and you're just for the first time this morning hearing uh, really the beginnings of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you, my friend, have the capacity to love God. If you're here this morning and you uh, have been away from God for a considerable amount of time and God has been working in your heart and drawing you back and though you know that in your life and in your heart <coughs> you haven't quite got to the place where you can say that I have made everything right with God and I'm on sure footing in my spiritual life that even if you realize that but you are drawn to Him and you're striving to get to know Him and set those things in order as the Holy Spirit teaches you and guides you and draws you then you too my friends this morning can love God. If you are someone that has been in church maybe a long time, but you've never fully committed, or maybe at one time you were and you're less committed now, that you can in a capacity love God. And God is saying to us, love me. Love me according to the max of your capacity, according to of, of your heart. In essence, what he's saying is that I am to love God in every way. I am to love God uh, to all and, and every aspect and area of my life. Then he says, love me with all of my heart. The word heart comes from the Hebrew word labab, and it means the innermost organ, obviously. But beyond that, it means the inner man. And by definition, its own Hebrew definition, it means the seat of our appetites, the, the place where uh, our deep emotions read, the seat of our emotions and passions, the, uh, the mind and knowledge. It, it, it means our thinking and our reflection and our memory. Now, generally speaking, when we talk about the trichotomy of man, a man who has been born again, who's trusted Jesus as our Savior, created in the image of God, we are a spirit, a soul, and a body. And so the body we generally think of as this outer shell, our flesh and blood. The soul is our, generally speaking, our mind, our will, and our emotions. And our spirit is that which communicates with God. That's the part that died in the Garden of Eden that upon our salvation is regenerated in our life by the working of the Holy Spirit so that we once again have the capacity in our humanity to have fellowship and communication with our God. Uh, a life that is controlled by the body 
is a life that is going to be doomed to, uh, to disaster. A life that is controlled by the soul, mind, will, and emotion is going to be a life filled with heartache and misery. A life that is under the direction of the Spirit that is in fellowship with God is a life that can find joy and peace even in the midst of adversity and suffering. And so, uh, to, to just kind of set those things there, uh, Moses here is laying this out and he's saying, with all of your heart, with your innermost person, uh, with the depths of who you are to your understanding. Uh, and so we, uh, we see here it is that seed of appetites, but it's not the casual appetite. It is that deep-rooted, seeded feeling of who we are. Uh, and then he says, with all thy soul. The heart has to do with our thinking, our reflecting, our memory. With all our soul, the word soul here comes from the Hebrew word nephesh. I'm probably not pronouncing those correct. I'm no, no means a Hebrew uh, scholar. I just know how to use a dictionary. It is a breathing creature. So when we talk about soul, it literally the word means a breathing creature. Now, I, I told you what I told you about the body because uh, I, I, the soul is separate from the body. Uh, and a breathing creature in its literal sense would mean animals which do not have a soul. The only creature that God said is a soul is man. He said he created us and he breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul. Uh, we are the one creature that has uh, a soul. So what is the distinction here? What does it mean? Well, it means a breathing creature, but it could be used by definition either in a literal or a figurative sense. And so Moses is here painting a picture for them to help them understand that which breathes. In other words, it's the activity of the mind. It is, uh, it is the activity of the will. It is the activity uh, of our character. And so in essence, you could say it this way. It, it is not just who we are inwardly, but it is how we behave outwardly. So when we began to talk about uh, the with all of my heart, with all of my soul, we are talking about how does that which is in my heart manifest itself in my everyday life through the living of my soul, which then is coming out through the body. It cannot be contained. What is in me will come out. Who I am in my heart will come out. And I, just to be honest this morning, I'm not always real excited about who's coming out of me. The best of me is not always what comes out. And so uh, we're, we're speaking uh, here of, uh, of that part of us that, that is the, the deep-seated being that we are manifesting itself in our outward action. Then he says, with all thy might. This part I find extremely interesting. It comes from uh, the word uh, ma'ud, uh, which means vehemently. <coughs> it means uh, wholly or completely. It means speedily. So with everything that I have and everything that I learn, I am to rush to implement that knowledge of God into my life. I'm not to sit on it. I'm not to wait on it. I'm not to uh, take time for it to, uh, to, to, till I feel like it. it to, to love him with my might means that I completely, wholly give myself to the knowledge of him that I have and become compliant and obedient to what the Holy Spirit reveals to me in my daily walk. It also means diligently leave no stone unturned. 
Do not just go through it casually. Do not have the attitude of, well, that's good enough. I, I despise that term. Uh, I despise that attitude. Uh, that nothing, uh, everything that we do should be done to the very best of our ability. Uh, it drives me insane when we kind of get in the mode and, uh, and I'm working with someone and they'll just, well, that's good enough. If it's not my very best, it's not good enough. If it's not to the best of my ability and it's as much as I can push it beyond, it's not good enough. And so when we talk about diligently, we're talking about giving God our very best, whatever level of ability that is in this moment. And I cannot grow unless I'm giving God my very best. It means exceedingly, that's over and above. And this was really intriguing. That means louder and louder. In other words, it should be building as my life progresses. What I do today should get more bold tomorrow. What I dabble in and I'm learning today should get more confidence in tomorrow. It should begin to manifest itself more and more uh, in my life. uh, And I should do so consciously and I should do so confidently as I serve God. The most interesting part is, is this. That this word might, ma'ud, comes from an unused root word, that the word, it's U with an apostrophe W-D. So it's just kind of pronounced ood. It is meaning to rake together. In the sense of a poker for turning or for gathering embers, it is the word that would be directly translated firebrand. Or a branding iron. We like to have a fire in our fireplace. We, we if we're fortunate around here, uh, we can burn about uh, on a on a regular year, maybe maybe a half a cord of wood, sometimes a full cord, but that's an unusual year if we get to burn that much. Uh, I don't have a lot of fireplace tools. I don't really need them. Uh, we don't do <clears throat> no more than we get to burn it. So all I've really got is that poker. And when the fire is running down, uh, I'll take that poker and I'll rake my coals up underneath uh, when I'm putting new wood in. Sometimes I can even balance a big enough one on to get it in just the right spot. And I'll poke that thing. And sometimes when it's going out, all you really need to do is just go up and take it and just flip that log over to another side uh, and let it uh, be rekindled. And so that's essentially what this word might means. It means to give my whole self. It means to give myself diligently. But it also means that I am to be tending the fire. That my love for God is going to, of its own nature, as I'm busy in life, tend to go out. It is going to be tend to be quenched by the world around me and by the system of the world around me and by relationships around me. It must continually be fed. I must be raking the embers. I must be loading the fuel. And my life should be branded by its outward act as a reflection of what's going on in my heart as Christian. Now, I want to try to summarize that And just uh, one paragraph, basically. So if I could put it in a summary statement, and I wrote this out Friday or Thursday, uh, and it would sound like this. It describes a love that is growing in intensity as I learn of God, experience God, and reflect upon God. It is a love that cannot be contained within my heart. It is a love that must break through to my outer man, thus guiding and controlling my every thought, 
action and response to everyone and everything around me as I continually strive to stoke the fire of his love in my heart as the world around me strives to quench it. Now, as we consider that as being the great command, again, the question is, do I love God? Do I love God the way that God describes love? Do I love God with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my might? Because this is the greatest commandment as confirmed by the Lord Jesus Christ personally in the New Testament. Now, pastor, I don't know. I think that's a pretty good answer. I think for what you were just presented with, a, I need to take this and ponder it a while, is probably the best answer. So how does he then describe what this looks like practically to us in our life? How is this supposed to manifest itself? And that brings us, if you're taking notes that you were given in your bulletin this morning, uh, to the body of the message. So all that up to this point is introduction. Uh, if you're a regular here, you understand most of the time uh, sermons are long on introduction and then we get moving. Number one this morning, we see that it requires a commitment to the great command. I cannot fulfill the great command if I am not committed to the great command. I cannot be the husband to my wife that I promised to be on our wedding day 30 years ago if I am not committed to the, to the marriage. I must be committed. Now notice verses 6 through 9. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and they shall write them upon the posts of thy house and upon thy gates. Now what we're dealing with here as we're talking about being committed to the greatest command are matters of the heart. These are matters of what we described earlier uh, as being in our heart. And so how does it begin to manifest? Well, first of all, uh, my heart must be open to God's word. We see that in verse number six. I must be open to the truth of God's word. And these words which I command thee, the word of God, my heart must be open to, or it can never penetrate, it can never bring conviction, it can never grow my faith. It can, if I resist the word of God, it cannot do <coughs> the work that God intends for it to do in my life. He intends for it to confront me. He intends for it to challenge me. He intends for it to convict me. He intends for it to reveal my sin and my failures. He intends for it to give me hope. He intends for it to build my faith. God works in our lives through his word as the Holy Spirit of God convicts us of our sin and confirms the truth of the word of God and draws us and guides us through life. If I am unwilling to commit to the word of God, to open in my heart to the word of God, then I'm dead on arrival when it comes to obeying the command that is the greatest among all of God's commands. My heart must be open to his word. Uh, letter B in your outline, I would say that I must teach them diligently to my children. Verse number seven, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. 
It's real profound. It was real creative with that one. What are we talking about, Pastor? I'm saying this morning that the Christian life should be carried down from generation to generation, not because it was taught to our children, but because it was lived before them, and they live it because they embrace it and because they love it and because our God became their God. That's the whole point here. Love Him with all of our heart, soul, and might. Teach them diligently to my children. Now, how do I do that? Well, he tells us here, he tells us, first of all, speak of them at home. Speak of them at home. Do we teach our children at home? Listen, this morning, I, I love church. My whole life is, is really been, for over 20 years, really probably closer to 30, it's been completely <coughs> enveloped around the goings-on of, of the Lord's church. And and so I'm I'm... I'm it's all about relationship with him, but he loved the church and gave himself for it. Our avenue of, of service, our avenue of fellowship, our avenue uh, of, of learning beyond our own capacity all happens as we come together as a called out body of assembly of believers that God has ordained. It's important. And so it wraps around it. But it's not the church's responsibility, and it definitely is not the government's responsibility to educate our children in matters of, uh, of, of just regular scholastic items or scriptural things. It is the responsibility of the father. Now, as a father, I can delegate that responsibility, but I cannot, I cannot get away from the fact that it's my responsibility. Now, having said that, have we taught our children at home? Do we even speak of the things of God at home? See, he lays these things out here, and he, he just makes it really pretty simple. Uh, and he just says uh, that it's, it's to teach the children uh, and be diligent, teach them diligently to your children. And then he, he tells us how to do it, speak of them at home. Teach them the principles of God's Word and teach them to make decisions based upon the guidance of God's principles in His Word and teach them to view the world through a biblical prism and not the world's prism. One of the greatest mechanisms of destruction in our society and culture in the world today is that everybody has grown up, even Christian people, to have a, a, a culture, a secular worldview rather than a biblical worldview. We need today to return to the truth of God's Word. And I cannot do that if I do not speak of them at home. And then he says, speak of them in the way. Speak of them in the way. The habits of life, the daily habits of our life, the places that we go, the people that we interact with, the relationships that we engage in. And I'm not saying this morning that every word that comes out of our mouths has to be about uh, the Bible or the Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is, is that it should be guided and governed by Him. If it brings dishonor to Him, then it should be omitted. If it honors and glorifies Him, it should be included. If it is something that... Uh, hey, listen, I can I can go and talk. I love sports. I can talk sports with someone to the glory of God. A lot of times it's the avenue to begin the foundations of a relationship to bring someone to Christ. But if my 
Uh, if, if I'm so enamored by sports that I can't sit through a church service when football season starts uh, without watching the game or checking the score between point two and point three, uh, and a lot of times you watch when fall gets here, I've got, I, we, I love the Cowboys, and so I realize that I'm down here in, uh, in Texans country, but uh, I was born in Irving, and so it's never going away. I'm Cowboys blue uh, through and through, uh, but I, don't have, I can wait till I get home to find out what the score was. And you watch football season starts, how many people stop by to shake the pastor's hand on the way out of the service and, uh, and say, man, pastor, that was a great sermon. By the way, the Cowboys are up or the Cowboys are down, and here's the score. <laughs> well, how do you know what the score is and know what the sermon was about? <laughs> Who, you just revealed to me the God that you worship. You just put out on display, hey, this is my God. I like enjoyable things. I like to do activities with my uh, family, but, but to the glory of God. Speak of them in the way. Then he says, meditate on them when you're at rest. Meditate on them when you are uh, at rest. Again, verse number 7, it's all just right there. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest in the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Meditate on his word. And so he gives simply this command. What does my commitment to my God, my commitment to loving God with all of my heart, with all of my soul and all of my might practically, what does it look like? Well, is my heart open to his word? Am I teaching them diligently to my children? Then he says, and he says in verse number eight, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. And they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Now, when he talks about frontlets, a lot of times you see uh, in Asian cultures in particular where they'll have almost like a necklace around the head and uh, it'll have like a little thing that kind of dangles down onto the forehead or even between the eyes. That's a frontlet. Now, the Bible is not commanding us to wear frontlets. And, uh, and he says, bind them on your hand. The, the Bible is not commanding us to wear a bracelet with, uh, with uh, uh, God's word and, and, a, and a, you know, a big old sign of God's word on it. He's not, he's not instructing us to do that. He's saying that they've got to be bound to me. It doesn't matter if I have a trinket bound to my head if I don't have God's word in my heart. No matter of outward apparel and adorning is going to change what's in the heart. But what's in the heart will change the outward adorning. And so when we come and we realize here, he's saying, listen, uh, bind them for a sign. In other words, let me put it just in practical terms, is your Christian life on display in your everyday life? Is my love for God on display in my everyday life? Is my love for God on display in my conversation? Is my love for God on display? You say, well, pastor, again, you mean I got to talk about God all the time? No, uh, but your language shouldn't be filled with all kinds of vile accusations and cursing, and neither should it be in the pulpit. And a lot of times pastors will get up and they'll get uh, railing on, uh, you know, God said this or God said that, or they'll get up preaching hard on sin, and then they'll say, bless and they'll put the name God in there. They're taking the name of God in vain just as much as using terms that we would all associate with taking the name of God in vain. Vain just simply means without meaning or use. It is empty, hollow. 
No matter where we go, no matter what we do, whether it's a spiritual activity or whether it's just casual conversation, God should not be demeaned or torn down. He should be honored and glorified. God's binding them on a sign. Is it on display my outward life? Then we see letter D, write them upon the post of thine gate in your house. Doesn't mean that you have to have from the front door to the back door, God's scriptures embedded on the walls of your house all the way throughout. If you have scriptural things in your home, that's certainly a good thing. Uh, and I'm not critical of that at all. Uh, and I think it's a good thing. But I am saying that, that it, what he, his point here is not uh, that, uh, that, that I literally go out and write over my front door. It means, does my home reflect my love for God? Not the building in which I live, but the home that resides within it. The relationships within it. The marriage within it. The relationships with children, with friends, with, uh, with other believers that enter in. Does my home reflect my love for God? Am I committed to the greatest command? Hey, listen, if I'm not willing this morning to say, God, I commit to keeping the greatest command that you ever gave and understand that being committed to that means that it will that my heart must be open to the prodding to the leading of the holy spirit and i must have a submissive and humble spirit to him and that i must be willing to have what god is doing on my life on display to those that see me it is obvious to them that i'm not the man that i once was that i'm not the person that i once was and my home should reflect it in other words i shouldn't be a christian on sunday morning at church if i'm a christian i'm a christian sunday morning monday morning tuesday morning wednesday morning thursday morning friday morning saturday morning and from morning to morning all week long and if i'm not willing to do that i am not committed to keeping the greatest commandment Secondly, this morning, Roman number two, the consequence of the greatest commandment. We see we must give it, make a commitment to the greatest command, but what are the consequences of the greatest command? Verses 10 and 11 say this, And it shall be, when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all things which thou fillest not, and wells dig which thou diggest not, and vineyards and olive trees which thou plantedest not, when thou shalt have eaten and been and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord. So what's he saying here? What are the consequences of the great commandment? Notice the matters of what he's saying in the promised land. And these are dealing now with matters of the soul. Uh, the commitment is the matter of the heart. The dealings of practicality here uh, with the consequences begin to deal with the soul, begin with the reflection outside. Hey, do I uh, do I have to get water from a well? Do I have to go out and, uh, and, and truck water from a long way off uh, until I get a well dug? No, God gave them a land. And when he said it's flowing with milk and honey, <coughs> it means you're going to drive the people that are inhabiting that out i've given it to you they've already dug the wells they've already built the homes they've already planted the vineyards they've already planted the olive trees olive trees take decades to begin to produce they would have had to wait a long time to even bear the fruit if they would have had to plant and to wait no they walked in to a land that was flown with milk and honey the homes were built the homes were furnished the, furnished, the wells were dug, the herds were established, the vineyards were growing and producing fruit. 
everything that they needed. God's power, God's blessing, uh, God's provision, all of it was provided. Why? Because they loved the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might. What they experienced, and they exercised faith and crossed the Jordan and conquered Jericho and took the land and, and, and possessed it, was God's fulfilling of His promise that if you love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, then I'll provide for you and I'll make you prosper and I'll do all of these great things for you. It is the consequence of a commitment to a command. Are we committed? Are we reaping the consequences? And the truth of the matter is this morning that whether I am committed to keeping the greatest command or not, I am reaping the consequence. We stop and we evaluate our life Three primary things that we see here. Notice in verse number 10, And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land. What we see first is that when I am committed to keeping the great command is that I have God's guidance in my life. And if I am not committed, then I am wandering aimlessly about on my own, unguided. I am going through a place that I know not, unguided. If I were to pick us up and take us to uh, not even a U.S. city, uh, but a foreign city that is not in any way, shape, or form resemblance how anything is done here, and plopped us in the middle of it without any any landmarks, without any clue as to direction, uh, without uh, without any idea of how the roads run uh, or how the traffic laws work uh, or any notion, and it gave us an address and said, "Here's your destination." If you are living your life this morning uncommitted to the keeping of the great command, you are going through life without the guiding hand of God upon it, and you might as well be in that faraway place trying to find the one place that God is best designed for you on your own. It's impossible. But if I'm committed, I experience God's guidance in my life. And the consequence of obeying the great command and me committed to the great command is that I have God's guiding hand upon me. Verses 10 and 11 still. And he's brought us, shall have brought thee into a land which he sware unto thy fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give thee the great and goodly cities which thou buildest not. Their cities are built, their homes are built, they're furnished. What God is saying, he's saying, I've given you provision. And if you're committed to that greatest command, God has promised you provision. I'm not saying that you'll always eat lavishly. I'm not saying that everything will always be, that the cupboard will always be full. I'm saying that whatever needs you have, God will always provide. He will not always provide them in a way that makes sense to man. He will not always provide them in a way that you can see coming. But God will provide. It is His promise. It is His commitment to His people that He went over and above. Not only did He provide for their basic needs, but He gave them the added blessing of peace around them. He gave them the added blessing of crops already in production, of homes already furnished, of wells already dug. Listen, a life committed to the keeping of the great commandment is a life that enjoys the consequences of that great commandment. And the consequences that we see here in verse number 10 and 11 is that God will guide us through life. God will provide us through life and God will bless us through life. And if I choose not to, it's my decision. I don't have to commit to following him. I don't have to commit to loving him with all my heart. 
I don't have to uh, do everything with all my might. I don't have to teach my children what's going to be the result of that. The result is a life with no guidance. The result is the life of no divine provision. And the result is a life of no divine blessing. Am I this morning loving the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul? Then thirdly and lastly this morning, we see the challenge of keeping the great commandment. The challenge of keeping the great commandment. Verses 12 and following, all the way to the end of the chapter, and we're not going to read all of them this morning, but we're going to read sections here and there, and I'll tell you which verses apply to which subpoint here. Now we're talking about matters of might. We've looked at the commitment to the great commandment, a matter of the heart, the consequences of the great commandment, a matters of the soul, and then the challenge in keeping the greatest commandment. These are matters of might. Notice in verse number 12, Then beware lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. Ye shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you. What do we see here? First, we see that I must remember. If I will stay committed, if I will stay uh, consecrated to loving God with all my heart, then I must remember. What must I remember? All this we see in verse number 12. I must remember where I came from. So what he's saying here, he's saying, listen, you've been wandering. You've got, you've, <coughs> some of you have been born in the wilderness. Others were just children whenever you crossed the Red Sea. You've been wandering all these years. Now I'm preparing you to go and do what God's told you to do. I'm preparing you and reminding you of the great commands, the great potential, the great blessing, the great power that's available through you to Christ. And I'm just telling you that when you have conquered the land and when you've possessed the cities and when everything settles down around you, that the natural response of the human heart is going to be to begin to forget all of the good things that God has done for you and to long to experience the things that you see the world doing around you. And he says here, Beware lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt. And it's not real hard to look around our world today and understand that we live in a time when people are forgetting very quickly the Lord their God. I must remember where I came from. Where did they come from? They came from Egypt. They came from slavery. They came from a life of bondage. And my friends, this morning, the the bondage that they broke free from in Egypt is a picture of the bondage that we were born into, into a world without a spirit, without Jesus Christ as our Savior. And the chains that they wore are representative of the sin that we cling to and hang on to in our life. It captures us, and it is overpowering to us, and it binds us. And Jesus Christ came to give us life, and that we might have life more abundantly, and that we might be set free from the chains and the bondage of our sin. And what I need this morning if I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, is to remember that I was once a sinner that was on my way to hell, but the grace of God found me and saved me from my sin and cut me free from the chains of my sin and made me made it possible for me to live an abundant life in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I must remember where I came from. I must remember that I was a sinner. I must remember that I was vile. Hey, it's a lot harder to look on that lost person that you run into across town and look down at them and think, man, do they need Jesus when you remember that it wasn't so long ago that you were just like them and in many cases far worse. Remember where we came from. Remember that without the Lord Jesus Christ, we would be condemned to hell. Remember that we would be on a life that is without guidance. Remember that we would be on a path of life without uh, without direction uh, and without privilege and without blessing. I must remember where I came from. I must remember who saved me. It was the Lord Jesus Christ that saved me. I did not save myself by my own good works. I was not saved by a church. I was not saved by a person except for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know a lot of times people will go out and they'll, and they mean well, but they'll, uh, they'll say, well, uh, they shared the gospel with someone and that person trusted Christ and received him as their savior and was saved from their sin. Uh, and they would say, well, uh, so-and-so saved me. No, he didn't. He just showed you how Jesus could save you. Or somebody say, well, I saved that person. No, you didn't. No pastor can save you. No priest can save you. No religious system can save you. Pastors, priests, and religious systems will lead you straight to the pit of hell quicker than any sin out in the world ever will. What we have to realize is that it's what Jesus Christ did for me. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. It's about embracing the one who took upon himself the burden of all my sin and paid its penalty and conquered its power and rose victorious from a grave and said, now that I've done all of that, I make it available to you. It's a gift. I must remember where I came from. I must remember who saved me. Secondly, we see here that we must resist. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him. Ye shall not go after other gods and the gods of the people which are round about you. He's saying, listen, you're going to be naturally drawn to the culture around you. You're going to be naturally drawn to what everyone around you is doing. You're going to be naturally drawn uh, to what others are practicing. And whether they make it look religious or whether they make it look uh, satanic or it's somewhere in between, if it's not genuine fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's going to lead me to a place uh, that is going to remove me from being committed to the, to the love of God. Remember who saved me. I must resist. I must not succumb to the temptation to follow the world. And then verses 20, that's verses 14 through 16. And then I must recount. Notice in verse number 20. We're not going to read all the way to verse 25, but you can just kind of study that on your own. But for sake of time, We're just going to read a verse or two. And when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments with the Lord your God hath commanded you? Then thou shalt say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. What is he saying here? I must recount. If I... I'm going to give my heart to Christ. If I'm going to be committed to living the great command of loving the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my might, I must remember, I must resist, 
and I must recount. That recounting, that drawing the embers together, that stoking the fire, that continual building of remembering of what God has done, the keeping the fuel on the fire, remembering that I must recount to my children, to future generations, not a story that I heard, but a life that I lived in sincerity and truth. The stories that we tell will ring hollow and our children will reject. But the life that is lived will draw them to the God that we love. And too many have lost children because they simply went through the outer motions of loving God rather than truly, genuinely committing to love God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and all of their might. Do we love Him like that this morning? Do I, again I ask, love God? When I asked that at the beginning of the service, almost everyone in here's instant reaction was yes. When I studied this the other day, my instant reaction was yes. By the time I put my pen down and sent the notes to Sarah to make the slides, folded my pages and tucked them in my Bible, closed in my study time in prayer. And ask myself, do I love God with all my heart? Do I love God with all my soul? Do I love God with all my might? I had to spend some time in prayer. Recommitting myself. Recommitting my life. To loving God. Not to man's understanding. Not to the understanding that gives lent to a casual reading. But do I love God the way that God intends to love me? Because I'm going to tell you this morning, friends. The love that God commands us to love him with is the very love that God has loved us with. Pastor, I don't know if I can do this. Well, I'm going to remind you that John wrote, we love him. Because he first loved us. Pastor, I don't know if I can love like that. Oh, you can. You love like that to the capacity of your vessel. And let God grow your vessel until he's grown you to the point that everyone in your life looks at you and says, that man, that woman, that teenager loves the Lord their God with all of their heart with all of their soul and with all of their might. Do you love him?